are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Micah chapter number 5, we're going to read verse number 1 and verse number 2. Tonight, if you're able to stand with me, would you stand, please, if you're able, just out of reverence and respect for the Word of God. Micah chapter number 5, we'll read verse number 1, verse number 2, and we'll get right into the message this evening. Thank you for being in church tonight. The Bible says, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us, so they shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now you know this if you've been coming on Wednesday night, that we've been going through books of the Bible and then choosing a word that starts with the letter R as an overview or summary of the book. And we've talked about that amongst ourselves and probably we've gotten into some obscure words trying to outsmart each other, maybe ruin some of the books, I don't know. But this one's very obvious as we read chapter 5 and verse number 2. It's mentioned specifically in verse number 2. And because it is this time of the year, I felt like it was very appropriate. And the Bible says in verse number 2 that there will be a ruler that comes to rule in Israel. And for a little while this evening, I just want to use that as the title for our message tonight. And let's think on this word, that word ruler, and ask God to speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray for your power to preach, please. God, I pray you'd help me to glorify you and to lift you up tonight. And God, I understand people are weary, our flesh is weak. But for just a few moments, would you help us tune our hearts, our minds into heaven? I pray that you'd meet the need of the hour like only you can. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Bethlehem is ordinarily a quiet, small, quaint Judean town. Nothing to boast about or to draw the attention of the world around it lies there. Up to this point, the claim to fame for Bethlehem would have been that it was the ancestral city of David. But that truth would have been placed far back in the minds of most people by now. Most days see little to stir the excitement or to arouse interest. But the lot of Bethlehem is about to be altered for the ages. Caesar Augustus has issued a decree throughout the Roman Empire that there is to be a sweeping census and a taxing of all, all his Jewish subjects. The king who ruled over the Jews was not the king they'd hoped for. People from all across the province began their pilgrimage to the city of their forefathers to register as Roman citizens. Suddenly, small, quaint, and quiet Bethlehem becomes very busy, busy very noisy, and very crowded as families arrive with their donkeys in tow carrying their belongings. During the day, the streets are crowded. During the day, the markets are packed. During the day, deals are made. Goods are sold. Meals are prepared. Children run in and out of the wooden carts as their wheels squeak down the cobbled stone streets of the city. Registration tables are set up and lines of people wind through the alleys. Roman soldiers patrol through the crowds with their swords hanging by their sides. The braying of livestock echoes among the chatter of the crowds and the bells around their necks seem to chime in unison. Families are being reunited. Old friends are being reacquainted. Every house is full of people. The inn in Bethlehem is filled to capacity. The day is very busy, it's very noisy, and it's very crowded. But the night 
is another story altogether. As most of the crowds are tucked away in their comfortable accommodations, the cry of a newborn baby resounds within the wooden walls and the stone surroundings of a common stable. The scene is not busy but calm. There is no noise other than the lowing of the onlooking animals. There is no doctor present, no nurse to attend to the mother or her baby. The scene is very placid, very peaceful, and very calm. I think Philip Brooks summed up the scene right when he penned the lyric to his hymn that says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. The crowds are totally unaware of the event that's taking place in the barn behind the Bethlehem Inn. The usually darkened sky is strangely interrupted by a star that burns with a radiance unlike any star that's ever brightened the sky before it. In the stillness of that hour, a new mother rocks her baby in her arms. No congratulations are offered. No party is held. Family and friends aren't packing the waiting room to see the new arrival. It's just a young mother, her husband Joseph, and a baby boy. Shepherds make their way from their flocks to see the child as angels begin to sing praises to God. The attention of sleeping Bethlehem might not be aroused, but the attention of eternity is arrested upon this moment. As Mary gazes down into the face of her baby, she gazes down into the face of answered prayer. As she gazes down into the face of her baby, she gazes down into the face of fulfilled prophecy. As she gazes down into the face of her baby, she gazes upon Israel's consolation and the only hope for lost mankind. Mary looks down at a baby boy born in Bethlehem. And as she looks upon him with a physical eye, she sees what Micah saw 700 years prior with the spiritual eye. Born of a virgin, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, attended to by livestock, is the one who Micah declared would come not simply for the cradle, but come to be king and ruler in Israel. Over and over again in the Bible, we watch as God allows light to shine out of dark places. We witness as God does that which is extraordinary through that which is ordinary. God wades through deep waters to rescue man from his own sin and rebellion. God repeatedly spans the gulf and brings down the wall that stands between despair and hope. In the book of Micah, we find Israel in a dark place. The people of God are treading deep in the waters of sin. Israel's rebellion has built a wall between them and hope. Sennacherib, the Assyrian armies, and the judgment of God all loom on the horizon. Micah preaches to a people in need of light, in need of rescue, and in need of a God who could tear down the wall and allow hope to march through. Micah's name means who is like Jehovah. He's a contemporary with Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. A generation later, you'll find that Jeremiah quotes directly from the prophecies of Micah. Now tonight, if you like beautiful language and if you enjoy literature and if you like poetry, then you would enjoy the writings and prophecy of Micah. Micah's personal, he's pointed. His heart and his sincerity are translated very clearly through his pen and his preaching. Micah writes about the judgment of God, but thank God he always tempers it with God's affection for his people. Micah's preaching is pointed, but he pairs it with tear-filled eyes. Micah has a backbone, but he couples his backbone with a tender heart. Not only does Micah cry out over the sin of God's people, but thank God he also weeps because of Israel and their sin. And can I say it'd be good for you and I who've been called to preach to take note of Micah and it's all right to preach hard, but may we ever preach hard with a tender and soft heart. And I think we ought to call out sin, but we ought to have a burden for those that we preach to. 
If we look broadly at the book of Micah and just take an overview of his generation, you'll see Micah lives in a day of spiritual apostasy and civil corruption. Those in places of power, both spiritually and civically, are crooked. It would have been impossible to find a man in Micah's day that lived up to the command of Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. It was hard to find someone who did justly and loved mercy and walked humbly with God. Idolatry was being promoted. Private property was being seized. Judgment and justice were hated in favor of personal gain. Parents were mocked and money was loved and God was forsaken. Micah begins his prophecy in chapter 1 and verse 2, and he says, Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you. Now you'll find if you read the book of Micah that Micah did not stay out of politics. If a preacher who dabbles in politics is not your cup of tea, then you better stay away from this man by the name of Micah. You see, Micah wasn't hunkered down in his study, cursing the condition of his nation in whispering tones. But Micah denounces sin in both church and state and begged for God to intervene. You study through Micah and you find Micah's campaigning for a Bible-based philosophy of government. He's advocating that Israel, a nation that had been blessed by God and guided by God and chosen by God, returned to be a nation that is under God. And can I say it probably do us well in our generation as well to let our uh, convictions be known and our voice be heard. And when unrighteousness is taking place, we need a righteous voice that'll cry out against the sin of our hour. I wrote down a note and I almost didn't say it, but I think I will. It'd be good if we had some preachers in our generation that had at least much courage and conviction as the crazy liberal ladies on The View. Hello. And we'd let people know where we stand like they let folks know where they stand. The prophet battles against fake religion. He battles against false prophets. He battles against phony political leaders. In Micah's day, the leadership hated good and loved evil. The throne is corrupt. The pulpit is corrupt. The temple is corrupt. The courts were corrupt. And the Bible says Israel had an incurable disease because of her sin. The people were blessed, but they were backslidden. They lived in luxury, but mingled it with immorality. They had it so good that they thought they had little need for God. From plowshare to throne, from common man to king, Israel needed revival, and they were en route to judgment. Now, Micah specifically pronounced judgment on the cities of Israel. He predicts the destruction of both Samaria and Jerusalem. These largely populated areas influenced the entire nation. The progressive nature and the liberal culture of those large urban centers infected all of Israel. Now, Micah could have very easily worked for a news organization in our day because you'll find the sin that fills up his prophecy is the same sin that characterizes our own generation. Micah cries out against these cities. He condemns their violence. He condemns their perversity. He condemns their corruption. He condemns their materialistic attitude. He uh, condemns the bankruptcy, uh, spiritually speaking, of those cities. You see, the educated liberal elites of those large metropolitan areas boasted in their open-mindedness. They boasted in their liberty. They boasted in their humanistic intellectualism. They had little need for God or old-time religion. But the bad news was they had crossed a deadline with God and judgment was coming. 
The Bible says their wound is incurable. Now, from Micah's vantage point, it would have looked like in that generation that the Davidic throne was going to topple and there'd be no hope for Israel to endure as a nation. But I said at the beginning of the message that our God is a God who allows light to shine out of dark places. He's a God who wades through the deep waters of sin to rescue man. He's a God that repeatedly tears down the wall that separates us from despair and hope. And we see this truth displayed through the preaching of Micah. In the midst of his apostate generation, in his hour of corruption, both politically and spiritually, Micah looks ahead and he sees a cradle a kingdom and a king that would come and rule in Israel. Micah looks ahead from his day of corrupt power to a day when one would yield righteous power. Micah looks ahead from his day of spiritual corruption to a day when one would come that would usher in a spiritual revival. Micah looks ahead from his day of imperfect rule to a day when one would rule in perfect righteousness and sit upon the throne of David. The Bible says when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. And David looks ahead from his hour of mourning to a time in Israel when they'll have cause to rejoice because one will come to be ruler in his nation. Now in Micah chapter 5, we sort of glare into that one beam of light that God lets break through the black canopy of Micah's prophecy. As we look here at chapter number 2 specifically, we find a declaration of hope and help that's on the way. In verse number two, the Bible says, but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Out of an unexpected place, in an unexpected time, one would come forth from God to be ruler in Israel. That word to rule means to govern. It means to be in control. It means to be in power. It means to hold authority. It means to hold sway. And Micah is living in a day when they needed brought under control. He's living in an hour when they needed righteousness to hold sway. He's living in an hour when they were deviled by corrupt authority. And he looks ahead through the eye of faith and he prophesies of a day coming when a ruler would appear in his Israel. It must have been encouraging to Micah to think that it wasn't always going to be how it was, that what was was not going to be what is, that one day one was coming to make crooked things straight and set wrong things right in Israel. Now you study verse 2, and if you have a New Testament and eyeballs that can see, it's very obvious that verse 2 of Micah chapter 5 is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 spans a mighty wide swath of Bible truth, if you will. The verse provides us with a commentary of this ruler's birth all the way up to a time when he'll reign in a physical, literal kingdom. Now, Micah's contemporary, Isaiah, told us a little bit about the person of this ruler when he said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And now Micah declares to us the place this ruler would be born. He doesn't make any bones about it. He says, but thou 
Bethlehem. If you fast forward to Matthew chapter 2, whenever Herod was looking for the king, and he's looking for the Lord, and he's looking for the Messiah, the scribes come to him, and they refer back to Micah, and they say, if you want to find the king, if you want to find the Messiah, if you want to locate the ruler, you better go look in Bethlehem. I think we could say it like this. He's preaching this. Jesus is coming. Jesus did come, and one day Jesus will be crowned as king. I like the Christmas hymn that says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold he come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Can I say long before that perfect voice would ever fill the manger in Bethlehem, long before a virgin mother would stare down in the very face of God incarnate Micah declares to us that Jesus is coming in an unexpected time at an unexpected place he's coming to be king and ruler in Israel I love the perfection of the Bible because here we find the, the declaration again of a promise that will be fulfilled all the way back from Genesis 49 verse 10 when the Bible says the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. And now Micah tells us he'll be born in Bethlehem. The Assyrian invasion won't stop him. Sennacherib won't stop him. The attitude of the average Jew in that day won't stop him. The dispersion of God's people won't stop him. The king was coming. The ruler is on the way. It's amazing as you read your Bible how all the Bible centers upon one supreme subject. I think we could probably say it like this, from Genesis to Revelation it all centers around the same truth. In fact, I think we get more accurate and say from start to back it all lands on the same person. On every page, in every chapter, and in every verse, our hearts are pointed over and over again to one who would come, be put in a manger, die upon a cross, walk out of a tomb, and sit upon the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. You understand tonight, the manger is not the beginning of Jesus. He's from everlasting. He's eternal. He's always been, and he's found from start to finish of the Bible. In fact, there are 48 prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ in the Bible. Some 400 to 1500 years before Bethlehem took place. We can read about his birth. We can read about how he'd be born. We can read about the place of his birth. We can read about his entry into Jerusalem, his sufferings on the cross, dying, and even what he said as he hung on the cross. Can I say only Jesus spoke about himself before he was born? Buddha didn't do that, and Muhammad didn't do that. Hello? And your favorite religious or secular leader didn't do that, but Jesus spoke about himself before his incarnation from the very beginning where we read that the word created to the Garden of Eden and the promise of a righteous seed to Mount Moriah when God provided himself a lamb to the covenant with David to establish his throne forever. The Bible weaves its perfect words together into an inspired tapestry to show us Jesus Christ. It's encouraging to me to read that Jesus 
Jesus is not some kind of a God sitting back, biting his nails to the quick, worried about the circumstances of life and the state of things on earth and unable to intervene. But tonight he is the king, he's the ruler, and he is Lord. He's the king of ages. He's the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. He's Lord of all. He's Lord of glory. He's Lord of lords. He's Lord of righteousness. He's the lawgiver. He's the potentate. He is the prophesied ruler. He's the judge in Israel and the head of the church. In the prophetic sense, Jesus will rule. One day Jesus will rule in a literal kingdom. But can I say for you and I tonight, it's good to understand and realize it's not that he's going to rule. It's that he's already in control right now. It's pretty good news if you ask me. There's never been and never will be a second that ticks off the clock when our God is not in control. He's constantly, consistently, and completely in control. Micah looked ahead to a day when he'd rule. Maybe not even understanding he was already ruling in Micah's day. Now let me try to apply it. I figured tonight we could have gone a lot of different directions with the book of Micah. But I don't know if you realize this or not, but it's kind of Christmas. And so I was feeling a little bit Christmassy. Is that all right? That's why I wore my red and green tonight, feeling pretty Christmassy. But I couldn't help to think maybe somebody would just need to hear this said. Your God's in control. You came in here carrying circumstances and burdens and whatever season or lot in life you find yourself in, and you might just hear somebody say it audibly, though you already know the truth deep down in your soul. It might just help for a preacher to say it to you tonight that God's got things under control, that he's still at the command. He's still gripping the wheel. He's still where he's always been. You might not feel like it, and you might not sense it, and it might not appear that way, but it doesn't change the fact you can't dethrone our Savior. Tonight, Jesus rules. He rules just as as much as David did in Israel. He rules just as much as Nebuchadnezzar did in Babylon. He rules just as much right now as he will one day in the kingdom of heaven. So cheer up. Hey, get encouraged. You're on the winning side tonight. Our God is in control. He was in control when he was veiled in eternity before the world was. He was in control when out of the emptiness of nothing he spoke the world into existence. He was in control when out of darkness he said let there be light and light radiated out of eternity. He was in control when dry land divided seas and grass began to grow. He was in control when he purposely fashioned every living animal, fish, and bird. He was in control when he scooped up a pile of dust, breathed the breath of life into that pile of dust and made man in his image. He rules tonight. He was in control when Adam sinned. He was in control when Cain murdered Abel. He was in control when Noah lived in an unrighteous day. He was in control when Abraham walked by faith and he's in control tonight. He was in control when Enoch was raptured. He was in control when Jacob wrestled. He was in control when Isaac was placed on the altar and he's in control right now. He was in control when David killed Goliath. He was in control when Elijah felt all alone. He was in control when Joshua was stared at Jericho's walls. He was in control when Jeremiah wept and Jonah preached and Micah prophesied. And I don't know what it is, but I know this. He's in control this evening. He was in control. He was in control when he fasted in the wilderness. He was in control when he battled the devil. He was in control when he walked upon the water. He was in control when he raised Lazarus from the dead. He was in control when he stood in front of the Sanhedrin. He was in control in Pilate's 
victorious and he's in control tonight. He was in control as he was tied to a post. He was in control when the cat of nine tails ripped his flesh. He was in control when the thorns were driven into his brow. He was in control as the cross was put upon his back. He was in control when nails were driven through his hands and he was in control when a nail was driven through his feet. He was in control when the spear pierced his side. He was in control whenever Pilate uh, answered Micah's prophecy and nailed a sign above his head that said hail king of the Jews he was in control when he cried from the cross he was in control when he yielded his life he was in control as they put his body in the tomb he was in control when his body laid in the tomb and he was in control on the third day when the stone was rolled away and he walked out on resurrection ground from eternity past from cradle to cross from that first cry of Bethlehem to it is finished from now throughout eternity he's the ruler he's the king and our God is in control he's immutable that means he doesn't change that means you can't alter him you can't diminish him he's always ever the same He's the same in grace. He's the same in mercy. He's the same in love. He's the same in truth. He's the same in justice. He's the same in justice, uh, judgment. He's the same in power. And he's the same in the fact that he's got it under control. You can't vote him out of office. You didn't elect him. And you're not going to impeach him either. You say, where's Jesus tonight? I'll tell you where he is. He's on the throne. You say, where's Jesus tonight? He's on the throne. Our hearts are moved with joy when we consider baby Jesus in a manger. Our hearts are filled with gratitude when we think of dying Jesus on a cross. But our hearts ought to overflow with confident faith and expectation when we look above a cradle and beyond a cross and see Jesus on a throne. You drug something in from Monday, Tuesday, and the day today into church with you, can I say God's bigger than that? And whatever it is that you're going through, I wanted to remind you that ruler that's going to come is already in control this evening. Let me say it like this. Since it's Christmas time, he was in control in Micah's day. He was in control in Mary's day. And hallelujah, he's in control in my day. Let me give you a couple things and we'll be through. Number one, he's in control when it comes to the circumstances of life. The very first word of verse number two is that little conjunction. Welcome to English class. Y'all didn't know you're going to have English, did you? y'all that's a continuation from verse number one it's a response from verse number one he's in control of the circumstances verse number one doesn't sound real good the bible talks about the fact that the judge of israel will be smitten on the uh, uh, will be smitten on the cheek and then god steps in with this conjunction and says yeah but in spite of that anyhow i'm bigger than that i'm beyond that i can overcome that i'm still going to send forth the ruler anyhow and what a reminder it is in Micah's day, no doubt as he preached this message and this uh, verse of scripture was penned, it reminded him that no matter what the odds looked like, it didn't knock God off his throne. He was still in control. Sennacherib didn't scare God off his throne. The Assyrian army didn't shake God upon his throne. The circumstances of Micah's day did not bother God. It didn't matter what they were facing. It's about who was on their side and God was in control in Micah's day. But then I thought about this, God was in control in Mary's day. You're trying to tell me this little girl that nobody should know, a woman of low estate, married to a man who's poor, a carpenter? Hello? And then they get engaged, and all of a sudden she's with, that's the one that's going to bring forth this ruler? And then of all things, there's a taxing going on. And they have to travel 90 miles or so from Nazareth to Bethlehem on the back of a donkey? 
God's in control. You understand that donkey? I mean, they couldn't have any air. Man, if that donkey would have stumbled and fell and married, that God had to be in control. God had to keep her safe. Didn't let her deliver till she got to the very place where the Bible said that Jesus would be born. He was in control in the minute details of the whole Christmas story. No room for them in the end. That probably caught God by surprise. No. He had a stable out back just for them. But I got something better than that. He's in control of the circumstances in my day. The same God that had everything under control for Micah and had everything under control for Mary, he's got everything under control for me. Just fill in the blank with whatever it is right now that you think he doesn't have under control and just remind yourself, yes, he does. Hello, bank account, health, whatever it is. You just fill in the blank, and I want to remind you, God's got it under control. He rules in the circumstances of life. Delivery room, funeral parlor, sunshine or rain, clouds or clear skies, God is on his throne. Next statement, God's in control when it comes to the capability of life. Not just the circumstances, but the capability of life. The fact he would even use Micah, just a country boy from a small town, to give us an inspired book like this. God put a lot out of Micah. He put a lot out of Bethlehem, a small town. They said maybe 300 people lived there. Wasn't a large metropolitan type city. And yet God brought forth the Messiah from that place. Man, he did big things with a small town. You're talking about Mary. She, and Joseph, of all people, he's going to use them? In fact, they would slander, pick at Jesus later on and say, that's the carpenter's son. You know what? God's in control of your capability and ability. You know, what do you mean? It's like Bob Jones Sr. say, God can hit a mighty straight lick with a crooked stick. Amen. God doesn't need your talent. He doesn't need my uh, charisma or education. God can take a nobody and do something great with their life. Amen. You're here tonight. Listen, God could use you to do great and mighty things for his glory. Amen. You say, well, I don't have any talent. You have God. That's all you need. You just give yourself to him and let him do all the rest. He's in control tonight. I was reading uh, some Christmas hymns just to try to think of a hymn that would fit this thought. And I found a hymn, and I don't think I've ever heard it, and I don't think I've, I know I haven't sung it. I usually don't sing songs I've never heard. Uh, anyway, uh, but the, the, title of the, the title of the hymn is, Who is He in Yonder Stall? I don't know if you ever heard that or not. But the word says this, Who is He in Yonder Stall at whose feet the shepherds fall? Who is He in deep distress fasting in the wilderness? Who is He the people bless for His words of gentleness? Who is he to whom they bring all the sick and sorrowing? Who is he that stands and weeps at the grave where Lazarus sleeps? Who is he, the gathering throng, great with loud triumphant song? Lo, at midnight, who is he, praise in dark Gethsemane? Who is he on yonder tree, dies in grief and agony? Who is he that from the grave comes to heal and help and save? Who is he that from his throne rules through all the world alone? Tis the Lord, O wondrous story. Tis the Lord, the King of glory. At his feet we humbly fall. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. 700 years before that first cry came out of that perfect little baby, Micah said he's coming. And we celebrate Christmas because he came. And you and I have the expectation he's coming again. And one of these days, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
But whether they ever confess it or not, it doesn't change the fact he is. And tonight you wandered in church thinking it'll just be Wednesday night. I hope you don't leave that way. I hope you leave with something in your hip pocket, that little reminder, hey, your God is in control. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.